0: Well, I don't know about you all, but I feel like I've been drinking from a deep well. And just when I feel full, like I can't contain any more, more (laughs) comes and gets poured out on me. So this has been such a joy and privilege to be here. Yesterday, Len Sweet talked about this way of understanding the world and our place in the world when he talked about how we understand image or metaphor, and then that becomes story, and then we add a soundtrack to that. Well, I would like to insert another piece into that sort of matrix, and that is setting. And any good storyteller will tell you that setting is critical. Um, All great literary characters have a particular place that they exist in. There would be no Huck Finn without the slow-moving Mississippi, no Dorothy without the um, tornado-swept landscape of Kansas, and certainly no Bilbo Baggins without the bucolic fields of the Shire. In all these examples, setting both creates and defines the story and the characters. So with this in mind, I would like us to consider Jesus the outdoorsman. Now, of course, I don't mean Jesus, a guy with a rifle and a bird call wearing camo. I mean Jesus, a man whose life and stories he told are primarily set in the outdoors. Consider this. Jesus is born outside in a cave surrounded by animals, and he dies outside. His ministry begins outside first at his baptism when a dove, probably a rock dove in in Palestine at that time, Mark's the anointing of his ministry. And then in the wilderness where Mark's gospel says, and he was with the wild animals. His work and his teaching are physical and earthy, and besides being inside for meals and a few gatherings, all the gospel writers primarily place Jesus outside, where he does all sorts of earthy things from touching bodies, to walking on water, to turning fish and loaves into multitudes of fish and loaves, to using spit and dirt to heal, to cooking a barbecue on the beach for his friends. He teaches on mountain sides and from a boat on a lake. And when he needs the peace and companionship of God, he retreats to the hillside or the lake shore. And then we come to his parables. And we find that they are filled with sheep, goats, fish, fields, flowers, birds, bread, yeast, pearls, seeds, sand, rocks, floods, vines, vineyards, thorn bushes, thistles, wine, water, wolves, and foxes. I couldn't memorize that. I tried. (laughs) What does this tell us about Jesus? Jesus. How can seeing this obvious thing about him that we don't often think about, that his preferred places of prayer and ministry, and that his preferred metaphors and settings are the stuff of the outdoors? How can seeing this obvious thing help us know him afresh, less like this theological construct, and more like a person we would actually like to know? So I'd like to offer this thought before I leave you with a modern-day parable. And that is the rather obvious observation that Jesus discovered wisdom with a capital W and the presence of God in creation. Perhaps he could make up all those parables seemingly on the spot because he had already walked the hillsides and the lake shores as an invisible, unknown, perhaps angsty young man coming to terms with his own identity. Because if he was a man like us in all things, then he had to go through a process of self-discovery. He had already looked around at the birds and the fields and the flowers, and he had seen both the oppression, but also heard the voice of his father there. So way before Jesus said, considered the lilies of the field. He himself had considered the lilies of the field. Particular lilies in particular fields. And as he considered them, he saw that God cared for these little insignificant things. Wildflowers that were a dime a dozen, little bits of vegetation that could be trampled on without thought. God cared for these little vulnerable things God clothed them in beauty beyond what a king could afford and I imagine Jesus looking at these lilies and then taking this deep sigh and thinking if God could care for these little flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow how much more can he care for me Jesus was a good Jewish boy, and he knew that God could show up in an oak tree, or a burning bush, or a cloud, or a mountain, or a stone pillow, or a raven, or a gentle wind. He wouldn't have confused these things with God, but he would have seen them as places where his father could show up. So I'd like to tell you a story. It's a true story, and it happened a few years ago at the Christian Environmental Center that my husband and I started in British Columbia, Canada. And to give you your own setting for this place, I'd like you to imagine a youth hostel meets the Sierra Club, meets an organic farm, and wrap the whole thing in Christian community. And at this place, we invite um, young people from all over the world uh, to participate in our conservation work as interns. So on a particular August afternoon, I was walking across the lawn at our Brooksdale Environmental Center Center, when a 19-year-old intern came scurrying by carrying a bucket. And when I asked her what was in it, she tipped it over a bit, and she showed me this gray, wide-lipped fish swimming in a few inches of water. And she said, I'm off to the program office to identify it. Turns out it was a Salish sucker, an endangered species. It hadn't been seen in our watershed since the 1970s, and it had been considered extinct in our river system, and in fact, it only exists in six river systems worldwide. So needless to say, this was a very big deal. So when I later asked her the story of the day and what it was like to discover an endangered species, she told me that story. And obviously, a girl that had this intimate relationship with God, she said that upon waking, she felt like God was saying to her, I have a surprise for you today. So she went about her day doing interny things, and towards the end of the afternoon, she walked down to the pond where she could check a fish trap that was being used as part of an invasive species monitoring project. And in fact, this was to be her last check of the whole season. And as she bent down to pull the trap out of the water... She heard God say, here's your surprise. Her eyes brightened as she told me how she lifted the wire cage out of the water, and she looked in and she found a fish that was strange, not one of the regular invasive species she'd been catching all summer, but a fish that looked even too big to fit through the opening of the trap. And she knew immediately that it was something special. And at this point in the story, she paused and I said, wow, that is fantastic. And in the inner sanctum of my mind, I thought, this girl is a wacko. (laughs) And I think I thought that for two reasons. First, to hear God speak so directly is weird. I mean, how presumptuous. But my own experiences in contemplative prayer had shown me that God is actually quite capable of interacting on a very personal level. Funny how God's interactions seem so normal in our lives, but so bizarre in other people's lives. Secondly, to assume that God cares about a sucker fish is weird. I mean, sure, I, I agree. As the old song goes, his eye is on the sparrow. And when it comes to an endangered species, I'm easily convinced that his eye is on the panda and the Sumatran tiger and even the Vancouver Island marmot. But on the Salish sucker, A bottom-feeding, wide-mouthed fish with big lips? God's eye is on such an ignoble, unattractive creature? That's weird. And so I'm left with the question, who's the wacko? Maybe God's the wacko. A God who risks his reputation on earnest interns and middle-aged contemplatives. A God who fixes his eye on the humble, the overlooked, the ugly. A God whose eye is on the sucker. Thank you.